Cole Shack's Loot Podcast, Episode 2, Interview with Mark DeWizier. Cole Shack, where do you think you're going? I'm going out. I can't stand. I'm going to see what's around the loot. What's happening around here is an assembly column, not anything out of the loot. Cole Shack, come back here! series started and when it first aired it was on friday nights if you remember x files was on friday nights originally and in the first season it wasn't that big a hit it was you know it's sort of built in the first season you know that 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 where where x files really became a mega hit was in the second season and also uh they moved it to sunday nights you know, and that's where it really started to to take off. And they started to get on the covers of all the magazines and all of this. But somewhere during the first season, you know, I, I saw the, the X-Files and I, I thought, whoa, <laughs> hello, baby, what is this? And so, you know, I wrote about it, uh, you know, in, in favorable terms. And for the first little bit, it almost felt like the X-Files was this little secret that... Um, this small group of fans had you know i at that time i wasn't even thinking it would have a long run i thought well you know this is going to be this little gem of a show and uh it was it was about this period that chris called he got my phone number he called me you know and he told me you know how much of a fan they were of my book and, and i later found out that it wasn't just chris uh, it was the other writers as well, uh, Morgan and Wong, uh, Frank Spotnitz, all of them apparently were all big Kolshak fans, and they were also big fans of, of my book. Hi, everybody. This is Robert along with Bradley and Mark DeWiziak, and we are going to have a little Kolshak and vampire conversation and uh, Mark, you know, thank you so much for joining joining us on Colshack's Loop tonight. Um, Bradley and I have prepared quite a few um, questions of our own, and we did put some things out through the uh, sites that Bradley started with Colshack's Loop on Facebook and other other areas. And we have a few questions from people, and I, I think that's great. And and by short way of introducing you. Um, you obviously are an author, an actor, um, and an archivist, I think it's fair to say, when it comes to all things Kolshak. And uh, obviously, too, you... Now, are you still um, doing the reporting, Mark? Or did I hear that you've retired from that? And I know you're really busy with writing your Poe book. I, 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 no, uh, journalism and I parted ways about um, uh, a year ago. Uh, okay. When, that, when I... Uh, that was not my choice. There was a, oh, uh, no. uh, there was, there was a, a uh, shutting down of, of the, uh, of a group of workers with the newspaper where I worked. And that sort of brought an end to a 43 year journalism career. So oh, my. I have been working at newspapers from uh, 1977 until April of last year. So that was a 43 year run, most of it as a TV or film critic. And, um, uh, so, you know, it was just time. It was just, you know, like I said, the decision was not real. I did not make the decision, but mm. um, it was it probably was about the time to uh, to wrap it up, you know, and you don't right. really get to complain about spending 43 years in a job that's that good. You know, you don't sort of get to say, well, 
I got 43 years as a TV and, and nobody's going to listen to that very well, nor should they. Uh, you know, I, I have a story which um, I, I metaphorically use this in the Twilight Zone book that they say that, you know, what? Uh, whenever I would get uh, it all discouraged about uh, being a TV critic uh, and, and, you know, you try to make that job sound bad and you can't. You know, you sort of try to say, well, you know, I get paid for watching television. Go, go ahead. Try to make it sound bad. Try to make it sound like a, like a horrible job. And you can't. And, you know, in, in my mind, whenever I would go there, I would go to this mythical bar on the west side of Cleveland. And I'd be sitting between these two unemployed hulking steel workers. And they would be looking down at me as the three of us are drowning our sorrows like Bogart and Casablanca, throwing them back. And they look down at me and say, you know, what's your problem, buddy? And I say, well, I have to watch television for a living. And they say, like, do they pay you for that? Yeah, the sons of bitches pay me every single weekend. The check clears, too. Well, you know, it's a one-way trip to the parking lot to get your ass kicked. And you deserve to get your <laughs> ass kicked for complaining about uh, living that way and having a lifestyle that way. I was very blessed for a long time to be able to make my living uh, doing doing that. And now I'm making my living writing books. And, and, and that's, uh, you know, pretty nice, too. You know, uh, so... Uh, I, I I don't get you. You can't complain about sort of getting what you wanted. You yeah, know? and you know, has, and you you have said before that um, you know the, the universe has its own own direction for you, and and I think this is just one of those examples there where uh, the the journalism door is is closed a little bit, at least in terms of working with a company doing that doesn't stop you from being your own independent journalist, but it opens the door for you to be the the author now. And, and, and work on the Poe book. But I think the, the real burning question I have for you um, initially is, are you the Neil deGrasse Tyson of vampires? <laughs> Thank goodness you're laughing. I, I was just is there a need for a Neil deGrasse Tyson of vampires? <laughs> well, I don't know if there's a need or not, but are you that? that that's what I, I feel know. you are. I, you know, obviously a, a great deal of what I've done has have been, connections and you know when i started teaching at kent state in uh, 2009 I, I started teaching a writing course there and they that went well and they came to me and said you know would you like to teach another course and i said sure uh i would like to teach a film studies course on you know vampires on film and television and uh they sort of said you know uh really and i said why and, and they said oh, well I, I and i said this is why I practically have a PhD in this, you know, is that if you look at the books that I've written, um, somewhere in all of the books I've written cross the, the, among the, we won't say cross because that's a bad word for vampires, but the, uh, among the things which sort of come together in what I've written are Dracula, the night stalker and I am legend, uh, all, all come into there. And that's the undead. And, uh, then I'm not talking about journalists. I'm talking about, uh, <laughs> the you know the, the, these vampire stories so um you know i think it's for others to say what position you may occupy there you know uh whether it's the van helsing the neil degrassi tyson or the professor stokes of this there i don't know what it what it is but it's whatever it is i'm there and it's a, it's it, it definitely is a running part of my my, my personal fandom my personal interest and obviously it, it has hit a lot of the books that i've written yeah. When I when I was really sort of a one off, but then I thought, well, wait a minute. So 
and then I listened to your lecture about Dracula and Twain, or excuse me, Stoker and Twain. Mm -hmm. And so I would imagine there are other vampire experts, vampire lore experts. I'm not sure how to categorize that. And are there a couple off the top of your head who you would think people, if they want to dive further into this, I would imagine maybe some are mentioned in your book about uh, Dracula and vampires, but who else, who else would you say is out there who does some of the things that you do? Maybe not the exact way that you do it, but what would you say to that? Well, from, uh, you know, certainly one person I would say immediately from just a pop culture standpoint and somebody who has probably done more work on establishing a lot of the, the Stoker research, the Dracula research is David Skull. David Skull is, is uh, he's a great guy, number one. Um, I've helped David a little tiny bit in some of the research he's done. He's helped me a lot in the research I've done. And, uh, I mean, David's the guy who discovered the uh, the Spanish language version of, of, of Dracula, the 31. Oh. He actually went to Cuba and found the copy of it. You know, he's, this guy, is, he wrote the definitive biography of Stoker that was published a couple of years ago, ago called Something in the Blood. Uh David is, is he's heavyweight time. There's a professor up in Canada, Elizabeth Miller, who is just aces. Elizabeth wrote one of the great books. Uh, he's, she's written a lot of the great books on, on vampire research and, and Dracula research. And she wrote a book called uh, Dracula Sense and Nonsense, which basically knocks down a lot of the mythology that surrounds both the fictional and the historical figures of Dracula. Hmm. And, uh, so there are a lot of them out there. Just really, they, these are all people who I, you know, just, just, you know, I, 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 I've known and talked to and consulted over the years because um, I'm doing the same thing with Poe right now as I'm writing the Poe book. Is I'm no dummy. I'm consulting all the leading Poe scholars who are out there. You know, just as I did when I wrote my Dracula book. Uh, you, you can research all you want, but these people have dug very, you know, and and you know when you sort of say like, well. If I have any claim to, to to any kind of legitimacy as far as uh, this kind of vampire research, it's the fact that I've been able to sort of deep dive on a couple of very prominent vampire topics, not the least of which is Night Stalker. You know, Night Stalker is one of the most important vampire stories of all time, and it is certainly one of the most influential. And I was in the right place at the right time to sort of do the deep dive research on that and establish that. Uh, and I didn't set out to be Carl Kolschak's biographer. I did not, you know, uh, set out to be the leading chronicler of this. It just sort of turned out that way. But that sort of led to the friendship with Richard Matheson, and that led into doing some pretty deep dive research into Richard. So, you know, I happen to have done some pretty deep dive research into a couple of very, very important topics and stuff that other people haven't done. As far as that, so you know, with, as far as I am legend, the Dracula stuff I've done, I, I don't think there's anything groundbreaking about it. I, I, I like that book an awful lot. I think it's a it's a good primer on Dracula for anybody who doesn't know anything about it, or wants to know a lot more about it, knows a little bit about it. So you know, uh, but really, I think it's been Night Stalker and and I Am Legend that are the two things that have sort of you know. Uh, pushed any kind of reputation I might have, if I have any, that uh, as far as vampire research goes. 
Yeah, and you you're talking about vampire research, and of course, Night Stalker. Uh, one of the questions we got on the Facebook group, of course, we have this one of your great published works. Uh, that, that antique, yes, <laughs> yes, that antique. Uh, and uh, there's talk of I, I think Cole Shack being re released on uh, Blu-ray the series. Uh, fall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, one of the questions we got asked to the Facebook page was. Are you thinking about releasing an updated version uh, or putting that version back in print or anything of the sort? You know, uh, uh, you know, I'll answer the. I'm not going to dodge the question. I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to give a, a very. But to answer that question, you know, uh, a, a couple of years ago, um, a small publisher came to me uh, and asked me about republishing my history of the Columbo series that I had done in 1989, which led directly to doing the. The, the book you just handed it held up and um i was sort of like uh <laughs> the book was 30 years old that book was about the, the colombo book was published in 1989 and i said how many sales could there possibly be left in this you know really you know i, I was very unenthusiastic about the whole thing and sort of like you know that book had its time i'm glad it was published but you know the Colombo fans were asking the same thing. You know the Kolchak fans are ready. Are you ever going to reissue the book? Are you ever going to? And finally, you know this publisher wore me down, and I and kept saying back, so you know I think and I, and I finally said, look, okay, here's the deal. I'll let you republish the book. I'll let you reprint. You can do a facsimile reprint of the book under one condition. I don't have to lift a finger to help you. I'm very busy. I've got a lot to do. You have my permission. I've got the rights to the book. So, you know, uh, they said, oh, good, fine. We'll just do a facsimile reprint of the book. And uh, they went set to work on it. And then after a couple of weeks, I called them and said, you know, you can't just publish the book and just reprint it. It needs like a new preface on it or something that sort of explains why it's being reprinted. Let me write you a new preface. <laughs> and, they, and they said, okay, good, good, good. That, sure, that's a good idea. So I sent them the, the new preface. And then after uh, another couple of weeks, I called them up and said, you know, when Peter died, I did a remembrance of Peter. I could expand that. and We could end the book with that, have new bookends. After a couple of weeks, I called them and said, you know, um, a lot happened since 1989. There were 24 new Columbo mysteries after that. And it, they ought to be noted at least in some way. Why don't I do an appendix for the bag? And we do like a year-by-year -year diary on what happened since then. Well, I... I at this point, I had sent them about 10,000 new words. And then they called me and said, you have got to stop. You've, you've got to stop right now. Because if you write one more word, you are gonna, you're going to send the page count over, and then we're going to have to charge more for the book. You know, th these things are figured out beforehand. I said, okay, I'm done. I'm done. I'm, and, and I could have probably kept sending them a lot more on this. But finally, this was re reprinted um, in late uh, 2019 as uh, the, the reprinted Columbo file. The next day, this book was number one at Amazon in books on movies and television. And it has been selling briskly ever since. It has absolutely stunned me. And this is the one that I said, oh, come on, how many people can be left? How many people can be interested? Well, it's, it is, uh, ask me now how happy I am that I let them reprint this. Well, that immediately set me to thinking about the fact that uh, January of tw 2022 will be the 50th anniversary of the first film of the Night Stalker movie. And it immediately set me to thinking about 
redoing the Night Stalker Companion as uh, as a book. Now there are two uh, issues here, as far as Night Stalker goes. One is I am writing this book on Edgar Allan Poe, and I need to get this done in October. I need to deliver it to the publisher in October, which does not leave a lot of time left over to get uh, a 50th anniversary reprint on the Night Stalker Companion done. But I would do it, you know, and it is still my goal to do it. It is still my aim and my goal to do it. But the world is different from when the nights when the first issue was the version was night stalking 91 the second issue was the night stalker companion in 97 when that that was a different world and one of the things that was different was there were a lot you could reach people on the phone and you could convince them uh of the legitimacy of what you were doing and so this book had a lot of friends there were a very complicated rights issue with Night Stalker. Very complicated. So I had to go to then ABC and sort of make sure that they would be on board with me doing this book. I could get the president of ABC, who was then Brandon Stoddard, on the phone. And Brandon immediately said, sure, go ahead, do whatever. We'll open the, this, you know. Brandon opened the archives to me. Brandon opened, he found me, you know, the guy who did the PR campaign, Dan Duran, was still in the PR department at ABC. ABC was just delighted with the idea that I was doing this. And I had a friend at, at Universal who cleared the way for, 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 oh, for things in the rights universal. Dan Curtis owned certain rights and certain things. Dan gave, gave me everything I needed for free. And Jeff Rice controlled all the literary studs. And Jeff uh, extended everything. So I, I basically had a free and open field back then, as far as this goes. When I say this is a different world, ABC is now part of the Disney empire. Yeah. And Disney does not say yes to a lot of things. They don't even tend to acknowledge your existence. They don't even tend to return your phone calls. Just getting people on the phone now. And Universal is now part of a big, an even bigger company called NBC Universal. So the rights issues on this are a lot more difficult than they were. Now, having said all that, I am going to pursue a new uh, edition of this book with the same tenacity of Carl Kolschak. I am going to give this my, my all, and I am determined to see it happen. But there are forces that are out of my control. It's not like this is the 1990s. And I can say with absolute certainty, oh, no, we can, we can make this work. We can make this happen. You know, I mean... Big corporations have become very protective of what they call their IP, their intellectual property. And they're very quick with cease and desist letters. They are very quick to, to they're very quick to say no to things because it's easier to say no than it is to say yes uh, to, to, to projects. You know. So I don't want to get hopes up falsely. 
I don't want to sort of let everybody know that this is this is a side of it that most people don't see, though, when they say they say, well, just revise the book. You know, why don't you just revise the book? Because it isn't just a matter of just revise the book. If it were up to me and I could wave the magic wand, we would do this. You know, this isn't a reluctance on my part. This isn't any lack of desire on my part. Um, this is going to be a matter of uh, can I overcome certain obstacles which weren't there in, in, in the 90s, you know? For all the in improvement in communications that we've had, it's a lot harder to get people on the phone than it was in the 90s. Yeah. The 90s was a lot nicer time, and it was a lot easier to get people on the phone, convince them that, that they should cooperate with what you were doing. You know, I'm glad I wrote my Columbo, my Kolshak books then, because it was a much easier time. Even though we didn't have an internet, we didn't have, uh, you know, you, you know, box sets or DVDs or any of this stuff, and there was no home video releases on any of this stuff, it, it was still kind of a, an easier time to get stuff. Yeah, and, no, you know, yeah. Universal sent me copies of scripts. You know, and I want, had a question and say, like, uh, can I have a copy of scripts? You'd have to go through their legal department, what's called their publishing rights division. But they actually sent me copies. Of, try and do that now. Try and copy <laughs> of a script out of Universal now. It's, it's, it's a different world. It is just a very, very different world and a different time. So th th that's the long answer to your question is um, – if I have anything to say about it and if I have anything to, you know, if, if I can follow up with the, the desire that is there and the, then yes, there will be a new edition. Um, but I don't control every part aspect of what's going to determine whether there's going to be a new edition or not. So, yeah. Yeah. And I also think it's a situation where uh, when you first published it, I mean, it was what, 20 years after Kolshak originally aired uh, and now we're, Right. right now we're coming up on 50. So it's sort of like an out of, out of sight, out of mind sort of situation, I guess, where, uh, I guess the further you get away from something, the more people forget about it. I guess the, uh, the powers that be might not be as, uh, privy to relinquish the rights or, or give the green light for you to publish something like that uh, as well. Well, and, and, and there's a lot of the book, the book could be republished, uh, easily with, which from a journalistic standpoint could be, mm -hmm. but what you have to clear are going to be people's individual rights which is illustrations yeah you know and you can't do a book like this without illustrations you know the screen um, caps and stuff like that yeah i mean there's there's the and and the book quoted extensively from the episodes and the the two movies and you know once you get into this kind of a, an area where you're beyond what's called fair use you have to be very careful you know you're dealing with people's copyrighted material you know, and so it's 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 a case of um, I still I, I'm, I'm very I'm very stubborn. I'm very much like Carl that way. I'm very stubborn. And when I get my teeth in the things, it's 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 very tough to get me to let go. So, you know, if you were going to ask me, do you think it's going to happen? I would say, yeah, because I don't think I'm going to give up and I think I'm going to wear people down and I think I'm going to get it done. Will it be done for the exact 50th anniversary? Uh, you know, uh, that I don't know. But maybe it can be done in the 50th anniversary year. Maybe it can be done in 22. That's the, Yeah, that, that's what I was going to say is you, you've got that year 
and uh, doesn't have to necessarily be on that date. That's going to be something very few people are going to consider about that. And, uh, yeah, my, my short answer is, yeah, I think there is. You know, I've, I've also been thinking about some Kolshak fiction, you know, and revisiting that because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've, I've, I've done I, – I, I, I don't know if I'm the only one, but I think I may be the only one who has written a Kolshak novel, novella, short story, and comic book script. I may be the only one to have hit for the cycle on that. So, you know, once you sort of let Carl into your brain from a fiction, it's hard to shut him up. So I've got other ideas. I've always had other ideas for Kolshak stories. And I'm thinking of a 50th anniversary story, which might be a lot of fun. So, you know, that's that's another aspect of of, of which way this could go. I I think that really, um, you know, as as a Kolshak fan, and then it through the short, I'll call it short, but it's probably been almost a year and a half now that I've been messaging back and forth with you, <clears throat> Mark. Um, I mean, I'm a fan of yours too. And, and I just, I really appreciate your, your YouTube lectures that you put out. I mean, I, it's, and it, granted, I'm a little, maybe a little different than most. I have an English degree. I used to teach a little bit. You know, I, I really get into hearing these connections and things that you talk about. And you should have seen me today when I was listening to your Twain and Dracula. I keep saying Dracula, your Twain and Stoker. And you mentioned that they were corresponding with letters. And I just like threw my hand in the air. I was like, they have letters. Oh, my gosh, there's letters. I was so psyched that that, that was happening. You know, I was so thrilled about it. And, um, but you know what, bring, bringing things back a little bit to Kolshak and, and I think so many of these fans that are on Facebook and in these sites, and I think there's probably some repeat people in these few Facebook sites that are out there, but you know, they have roughly 5,000 people, um, that are in at least two of the sites. And so, I mean, I think it's reasonable to say we've got six to 8,000 people right now who would do almost anything for a new Kolshak story and, 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 or would love to see a reprint and a revision um, and some additional information into your night stalking and your Kolshak companion. And, and I still haven't sent you my, my check. And by the way, guys, you can get Mark's novel. I, from what I understand, is that still possible? Mark, people can yeah, send, you, 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 send you, you, you a check for your novel. You will even it, like I mean. Put your thumbprint on it or something like that to <laughs> let us know it's yours. It's it, the, the standing joke on Grave Secrets, which was published in 94, uh, is that if you go to a lot of websites, you will see it listed as very expensive. And it is always listed as rare and collectible. And I always say, well, it's not rare and collectible around here. I got boxes of them, you know, and, and, and I let them, uh, you know, and I sell them for like 15 bucks a pop. You know, I just, you know, not pretty close to the, the, the original cover price. So uh, I, it's, it's just I just like to see it in the hands of, of Kolshak fans. I'm not going to gouge anybody or, you know, and I, uh, that's what the Internet's for. So I just sort of, you know, keep copies around for people like you who occasionally says, you know, like, well, I've always been wanting a copy of it. Well, why didn't you ask me? You know, everybody is going to all these different sites. This is three hundred dollars here. I'm thinking, like, like, are you crazy? You know, it's I'll give it to you for 15, you know, Uh, just so I don't lose money on the deal. I'm fine with that, you know. Um, So, yeah, you know, and and. 
you know, and Moonstone has done, a, you know, Moonstone Comics, which has been in the Kolshak business now for a long time. They have done a lot of Kolshak stories right. with the comic books. And that's one of the reasons for, you know, thinking about a revised edition. People say, well, you know, what's new? What can you possibly add to this? Well, there is a lot new, you know. One thing that's new, and it, it's sort of a sad part of it, is that almost every single person that I talked to and interviewed for the Night Stalker Companion is passed. They're gone. Right. You know, uh, all the people who I got to be pretty good friends with, like Dan Curtis and Richard Matheson and Jeff and uh, and Darren, they're all gone, you know. Um, and, and, you know, but also since then, we've had an awful lot of, New Kolshak stories, comic books, short stories, novels, whatever from Moonstone. We had the ill-fated uh, Kolshak revival in 2005 with Stuart Townsend. Uh, you know, no matter what you think about that, that is part of the story at this point. You know, right. and there is a great backstory to it uh, because it was bad, but why it was bad is not immediately discernible. And people think they have the answer and they don't. So I would love to tell that story and. Uh, put that into so there's an awful lot of stuff that can be put into this and also the rolling thunder of Kolchak's influence on you know the horror field and the genre and everything you know uh you've had so much some of that was discernible in the 90s when they went stuff like the x-files and buffy you saw the influence of of, of night stalker and in movies that were kept coming out at the time but that has just increased really since since then well, that's that, that that's a great segue because that's where I was leaning with this is the story that you've told, um, and and I'm I'm not sure if I've gotten it straight. I think it's become myth- mythological to me when I retell it, and uh, <laughs> and it's I believe it's the story when Chris Carter announced he was doing the X Files, and then and what what happened in that one because you were involved in that. I was at the, pre- the, 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 the interesting thing about that press conference, was, well, there were a lot of interesting things about that press conference, but one of the interesting things about that press conference was uh, I had not heard uh, anything, but I used to go out to California twice a year for what was called the press tour. And the press tour, uh, to, to, to sort of, the press tour itself was an X-Files episode unto itself because it was so bizarre. Basically what the press tour was, 120 TV critics from around the country all locked into one hotel and thrown television at them for two or three weeks. You would go out in the summer for the new season. And then you would go out in January for mid season when all the things from the, the summer had failed and they started to put the stuff on for mid season, you would go out in January. So you'd spend two weeks at a hotel in the Los Angeles area for, uh, and the, and the television critics association put this on and would invite all of the various programmers and when I first started going, it was almost all, of course, network dominated. It was, you know, NBC would take four days to show everything they had. ABC would take four days. PBS. Then cable got involved. Then, you know, it just it grew exponentially as, as more programmers took to the field. But um, when the the Fox entered, had the press conference for uh my my book, uh, Night Stalking, had already been published, so X-Files had not happened yet when uh, Night Stalking was published in 91. And shortly thereafter, you know, Fox announced that this series called The X-Files, 
And what was interesting was that the uh, the press conference, the hotel, was the Universal Hilton, which overlooked the Universal lot, which was where they shot the Kolshak, the Night Stalker series. You know, so <laughs> we were literally overlooking the the lot. And I remember sitting in the press conference, and uh, this this guy Chris Carter, who looked like a more like a surfer than he did a uh, a, a producer writer. I later found out he had been a surfer and had been a surfing journalist <laughs> in, in his past. Uh, and somebody asked the question, uh, why did he want to do a series like this? And he basically said he, because as a kid, uh, Kolshak had, had, had scared the hell out of him. And he wanted to do his generation's answer to <laughs> the Night Stalker. And as soon as he said that, my head sort of uh-huh. popped up. You know, it's like, what, what, what did he say? What? what? <laughs> did he just say Night Stalker? You know, I was so used not to hearing it, you know, and I think every head in the room turned to me you know, at this point because all of my colleagues knew I, you know, my mania for Kolshak and that I'd written the book and they all sort of went, ooh. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I, I let that go and then I thought, well, this is interesting. But, you know, you also think, you know, how good is the series going to be, you know? And then the series started, and when it first aired, it was on Friday nights, if you remember. X-Files was on Friday nights originally. And in the first season, it wasn't that big a hit. It was, you know, it's it sort of built in the first season. You know, that 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 where, where X-Files really became a mega hit was in the second season. And also, uh, they moved it to Sunday nights. You know, and that's where it really started to to take off. And they started to get on the covers of all the magazines and all of this. But somewhere during the first season, you know, I, I saw the, the X-Files and I, I thought, whoa, <laughs> hello, baby, what is this? And so, you know, I wrote about it, uh, you know, in, in favorable terms. And for the first little bit, it almost felt like the X-Files was this little secret that... Um, this small group of fans had you know i at that time i wasn't even thinking it would have a long run i thought well you know this is going to be this little gem of a show and uh it was it was about this period that chris called he got my phone number he called me you know and he told me you know how much of a fan they were of my book and, and i later found out that it wasn't just chris uh, it was the other writers as well, uh, Morgan and Wong, uh, Frank Spotnitz, all of them apparently were all big Kolshak fans, and they were also big fans of, of my book, you know, so it was a it, it was a very flattering moment. It was a very, you know, uh, key moment, and, you know, so, but, but it also tipped, you know, uh, Darren's uh, ire a little bit, because Darren, they 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 immediately uh-huh. kind of thought about Darren being on the show. Now you know Darren eventually shows up on the show as Arthur Dales, the founder uh-huh. of the X Files, and he does a couple of us. He was shooting a third episode as Arthur Dales when he suffered the stroke, which ended his career. But um, early on, they had thought about Darren for a lot of things. They had thought about Darren perhaps playing uh, Mulder's father, which would have been symbolically correct. They thought about him actually reviving the Kolshak character on the show, and they thought about him playing Senator Matheson, 
the, the, the character name for thought about a lot of things and and Darren uh, basically turned down all the early offers and there's been a lot of misinformation about this you know uh, some of the, the the information that gets out there is that oh uh, Fox couldn't get the rights to get the the Kolshak character. That's nonsense. You know, they, they could have gotten the rights one to there was two big companies talking to each other. They, that could have been worse. The big problem early on was that Darren was 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 so stubborn and he'd gotten into his head that X Files because Chris would tell anybody who asked him that he was inspired. And the important word is inspired. I, he was inspired to do the X-Files because of Night Stalker. Darren heard that, and he interpreted inspired to mean ripped off. Mm. And I can remember early on conversations with, you really ought to watch this show. Why should I watch that show? They ripped off what we did. They're ripping off what we did. No, they're not. This is a, this is a different thing. <laughs> this is a different sensibility. It owes a lot, but it's inspiration. It's not, it, it's, it's not imitation. Well, well, Darren finally agreed. I mean, I, he finally was won over. I think enough people kind of kept trying to say, you, you, you got to give this thing a chance. You have to give this a chance. And then finally he agreed to play Frank Black's father on uh, Millennium. The, uh, which was also done by the same team. It was done by Chris Carter and Frank Spotnitz. And that's what I think sort of won him over to playing Arthur Dales. On, on. But he could have been, he should have been part of that show a lot earlier. He should have been almost from day one, been part of the X-Files and could have been. <laughs> you know, it's some of those things about Darren that sometimes you just wanted to, to, to shake him. You know, D Darren, Darren could get an idea in his head and just, it, it could be like a bulldog uh, on things. So. <laughs> Bradley, do you have another question? Yeah, uh, earlier, Mark, you had talked about uh, uh, basically networks and stuff and trying to, you'd have to hassle them to do stuff nowadays. And uh, one thing I've been hassling Robert about is trying to do a Dark Shadows podcast, and he refuses. So, Mark, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing, the, throwing the invitation out now. We can, Me and you can start a Dark Shadows podcast since he is so... I mean, there's just 1,225 episodes. I mean, not that many That's episodes. Uh, just 1,256 or something. I, I never yeah. get the number exactly. Yeah, just not that many. Just a little over 1,000, I think. So, me and you got this, Mark. You, you said you've got more free time now. I mean, after you finish that Poe book, we can wait till after that. And uh, we, we got a Dark Shadows podcast waiting in the wings since Robert refuses. Well, this is another part of the the whole uh, vampire mystique that that I you know that has built up my reputation, I guess, as far as being a vampire guy. Dark Shadows is part of that, and so, so is the whole Dan Curtis world. Uh, mm -hmm. But one of the reasons Dark Shadows is part of that is because uh, I have been emphatic about. Uh, so you know, if if like Robert, if you took my class on vampires, you know, I would say to you what I say to all of my students of everything I show them, which is you do not have to like what I'm showing you. But you do have to appreciate its importance, and you do have to grasp its importance. Mm -hmm. And Dark Shadows is essential. It mm -hmm. is essential to the whole history of horror storytelling. It is essential to revolutionizing the whole history of horror storytelling. And you know the fact that it happens in daytime television on a soap opera makes it all the more incredible. You know, but Dan Curtis doesn't even have a career without Dark Shadows. I mean, Dark Shadows is not only establishes Dan Curtis's career. 
but it also establishes a form of storytelling as far as horror goes that has just tremendous influence uh, after that. And um, so, and I was what you see, see the, the thing is, you have to be able to sort of understand what the 60s were like. I don't want to sort of fall back on the you had to have been there thing. But you know what? You had to have been there because <laughs> it was such a different time. And if you were a horror fan, like we now say we have this term monster kid, uh, which is a term we did not have in the 60s. We didn't. We know what he says. We use it now. We you say now, you know, I was a monster kid. It means you were a horror fan, you know. But in the 60s, that term did not really exist. We just we were just horror fans. And we were the first generation of horror fans. We were the first generation that was truly just hard. We would we would identify as horror fans before that. You know, I mean, if you really wanted to to sort of like the, the, the quick pop culture tour on this, it really starts in 1957. 1957 is such a key year because 1957 is the year that Universal releases its library of horror films to television under the title Shock Theater. It's the rise of the local horror hosts because all these stations now hire their lo- these local their their weatherman or whatever to become you know Count de Gore or something as their 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 mm-hmm. late night horror hosts. But it 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 reintroduces all of these old horror classics to a new generation, and very quickly, you know, you have people like James Warren and Forrest Ackerman who are looking at that and say, "Whoa, you know, you got you got kids who are now identifying as horror fans. We can create a magazine for that." But in the 1960s, there wasn't that much horror really. What you consider horror, or you could the whole schmear, the history of it, all the movies, everything that was being produced at that time, there wasn't that much. You know, there was there was the Outer Limits and 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 the, and the Twilight Zone, and Thriller on, on on television. There was Famous Monsters and Castle Frankenstein magazine. There was Hammer horror films, the occasional Hammer film that showed up. So everybody watched everything. Everybody shared everything. We had a common language. You can be a vampire fan, just a vampire, not a horror fan, just a vampire fan right now, and be into 25 different things. Easy. Easy. Somebody can say, well, I love vampires, but all they're into are maybe vampire video games. Somebody could be, say they're into vampires, but they're just into something like Twilight or True Blood. Somebody can say they're into vampires and they could be into foreign films with vampires. It's such a complex world now. There's so much, it's like everything else has become so fragmented and there's so much entertainment coming from so many different directions now. Back then, it was sort of one universe. So now all of a sudden, 1967. I am 10 years old. And I have been a horror fan for, you know, about three years. And the word is getting out. There's a vampire running loose in daytime television. You don't think I was there? You don't think I, I what were soap operas? Soap operas were what my grandmother watched. Soap operas were, you know, my grandmother would set up her ironing in our living room. My little Italian grandmother 
And she would announce, I'm going to watch my story. It was As the World Turns. But she never called it As the World Turns. She called it My Story. And you know what? It was her story. I could never understand why anybody would watch it so much. <laughs> and you know and more. Then, all of a sudden, not just me, kids, teenagers, horror fans, all of a sudden there's a whole lot of people watching a soap opera. And it's and it's because of dark shadows. It's because of this and you know, we could get but, and without dark shadows you also don't get night stalker probably. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you you don't you certainly don't get Night Stalker as the way it's going to be because it pre- Dan Curtis becomes the producer, and that is key to this. The interesting thing about Dark Shadows and Night Stalker, when you take them as part of Dan Curtis's world, Dark Shadows was an incredibly derivative show. Almost every storyline on Dark Shadows owed something to classic horror storytelling. They ripped off. Frankenstein, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the picture of Dorian Gray, the Wolfman, you name it, they they ripped it up. Sam Hall was one of the writers on Dark Shadows, and he said, if Stephen King were up and running, we'd still be on the air because we'd be ripping him <laughs> off. You know? There is only one true innovation that Dark Shadows has. There's only one thing that they did, and it was kind of an accident, and that was they gave a vampire something which a vampire had never had before. Here's here's Stoker's book is published in 1897. Barnabas Collins is let out of his coffin in 1967. That's exactly 70 years. In those 70 years, there is almost no advance on the vampire character. The vampire is what he has always been, and that's Predator. We've made him a little more humanized. We've made him a little more seductive. We've made him a little bit more sensual with people like Christopher Lee and animalistic. But really, the character always reverts to Predator. And Barnabas is the first character who is given not only a conscience, but questions. Questions which most other monsters were given. But the vampire never had been up to that point because he had no reason to question his own nature. Why would a vampire question his own nature? There's no reason to. Why should a vampire ever want to change? And, and can a vampire change? Because that is Barnabas's key question. Can I change? Can I, And he does. He becomes the hero of the show uh, after a while. So the whole notion that we're going to get vampires that ask questions, that vampires can become heroes. Vampires can, can, can start to look differently. They can look like Blade. They can look like Selene. They can, in the Underworld series, this is, they can look like Dan Rice's vampires. And this all comes off a of dark shadow. Dark Shadows revolutionizes the world. Dark Shadows is nothing less because these stories, vampire stories always fit their time. They always reflect their time. You cannot write a sonnet in your time without being influenced by your time. So why does this suit the 1960s? You have to understand what's going on in the 1960s. So right. Not much, right? <laughs> That's right. There's a civil rights movement, a black power movement, a gay rights movement, a women's lib movement, an anti-war movement, the British invasion, a generation gap. The world's being turned upside down, inside out. Everybody's questioning their place in the world and saying, why not? And here comes Barnabas Collins. What is he? He's nothing less than vampire lib. He is the emancipation proclamation for vampires. After this, vampires can be 
whatever they want to be. They can look differently. They can act differently. And it's a mistake because, you know, when they hired Jonathan Frid to play Barnabas Collins, he didn't know how to play a vampire. The only thing he actually knew was that he had to play a vampire and he knew how long he was going to be on the show. Three months. He had a 90-day contract. And he knew how the 90 days were going to end because it was going to end after 90 days with a big piece of lumber sticking out of his chest because that's what they intended to do. After 90 days, he was going to be just a vampire like all the other vampires that had preceded him, a predator. And they were going to drive a stake through his heart at the end of 90 days. And then, you know, Jonathan started to play the unease of a vampire in a new century and his unease with being an actor on television. And the audience started to pick up on it and the writers started to pick up on it and they started to go with it. And they gradually humanized Barnabas. So it was, a, it was a kind of an accident, but then again, there are no accidents and it reflects so well. Now, because of this, they think of Dan to produce the Night Stalker. You know, so for every action, there is a reaction. There isn't, so right away when the vampire got humanized, there were people who immediately said, we shouldn't humanize vampires. Vampires are nasty creatures. They should have teeth. They should have ugly teeth, and they should be animalistic predators. What story does that? Night Stalker does. Night Stalker gives us one of the most animalistic vampires of all time in Yanis Skorzny. He is so animalistic and so dehumanized, he's not even allowed to talk. He is only allowed to communicate in snarls and hisses throughout that entire story. <laughs> so that's the, the interesting thing is, who gave us the innovation? Dan Curtis. Who gave us the response to the innovation? Dan Curtis. <laughs> Dan gave us the response to the response, which is, almost unheard of that you get that. And then he tries to blend the two with his Dracula, with Jack Palance. He tries to take both of those aspects and make it threatening and romanticized at the same time in his, in, in his story. So Dan's a very interesting character. It, you know, from a literary standpoint, you don't see that kind of duality in the vampire until really a couple years later in the mid seventies, when in the fall of, uh, I think it's 75, but I'm not sure. I'd have to look it up. Stephen King publishes his second novel, which is Salem's Lot. And Stephen King is very much on the Night Stalker side. Vampires are not nice. You know, your vampire needs to be nasty, terrible, icky, smell bad, bad breath predators. Six months later, Anne Rice publishes her first novel, Interview with the Vampire. And she takes all the questions that are in Dark Shadows and she runs with it, with her vampires. So you have two books symbolizing the split in the vampire world, both thanks to Dan Curtis, at the, on, the, on the bestseller list at the same time. So where does, so, so Mark, where, where does Jeff Rice fit in this then? Um, if, if Dan, is both of these, and the Night Stalker, has uh, going back to the the vicious animalistic type of vampire, and I love the reading how they so many people will talk about his horrible breath, 
And uh, that's a, a hallmark, so to speak, anytime you hear the, the interviews and people talk about that. Not, not really captured in the uh, TV movie as much. Well, but no, so censored, when it was actually censored out, they, they, there yeah. was they, ABC thought that was, you know, of all things to censor out, they thought like, you know, bad breath was, was offensive to people. <laughs> how could, how could <laughs> all the dead bodies were, were, but the, but the bad breath was, well, they wouldn't um, be able to, wouldn't be able to sell some sort of toothpaste or something, I guess. But so what, I mean, I, I feel like the, the story that Jeff Rice put together to me is, is absolutely a reflection of the times. And, and Bradley and I two years ago <laughs> did our first uh, episode of this and we, we covered Salem's lot. And, and I love that you talk about how that was Stephen King and, and he made them such a scary vampire. Cause I said, those are the scariest vampires that I remember as a kid that came from Salem's lot. Cause I saw that as a kid and I was born in 66 and I did, I, I guess maybe I was seeing reruns of, um, with Barnabas Collins, I had the, I had the, um, the game that had the glow in the dark skeleton. And, uh, so that was always fun. We played that game constantly, but, but back to Jeff, I mean, I mean, I feel like in, in some respect, I mean, really the story that he came up with was pretty genius. And, and, and I don't know if I can say that word, you know, and say genius as in, you know, Einstein or something like that, but I still think it was a very amazing story. And and I know that the, the team that then put it together with Matheson and, and Curtis and, 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 and McGavin, you know, had their own interpretation and, and life to it all. But, you know, I, I think if you contrast the Night Stalker TV movie with, let's say the Norless tapes and, 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 you know, could, the writing of the Norless tapes, if done by Curtis and McGavin and Matheson and all these other people that took the, that story, could it be as good as the Night Stalker? And, and I guess I don't feel like it could. Um, it, it's still a decent movie. Yeah, it is. Um, it is a decent movie, but compared to the Night Stalker and, and to me, the, the actual story, um, you know, I think the characters were, were flatter. And, 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 and I think that actually came through the writing, um, not necessarily just the acting. What do you, what do you feel about that for Jeff's contribution to all of this? Well, you know, you say, where does Jeff fit in? And in some ways, sadly, he doesn't because uh, there are so few people who understand what Jeff accomplished and there are so few people who appreciate it. It's heartbreaking. The fact that when Jeff died in 2015, there were only two stories written about his passing. There wasn't even anything written in the Hollywood Reporter or Variety or any of the major trades of the time. There was the piece I wrote for the Cleveland Plain Dealer, and there was a piece written for a Las Vegas newspaper, and that was it. They're the only pieces that that recognized his passing. And Jeff's influence is just incredible because Basically, you know, if, if if you like, you know, and as I wrote at the time, if you if you like uh, Supernatural now, if you like any of these shows that are on now, you know, or you liked Buffy in the X-Files in the uh, in the 90s. You know, none of that happens if there isn't a Night Stalker movie. And now there's no Night Stalker movie without Jeff's book. So Jeff is, has a tremendous influence on 
what's going to happen in the horror field and in horror storytelling. And it does go back to the book. And there's no question that Richard Matheson, Darren McGavin and Dan Curtis, and John Llewellyn Moxie, the director, because you yes. cannot, yes. You, you know, he's the one who started kind of get, often gets left out of this. But, uh, but you can, there's no, there's no denying the fact that all of them contribute mightily to the success of what that movie was. But what all four of the other gentlemen said to me, and it's in the book, what Darren said, what Dan said, what Moxie said, and what Richard said was all the same. The book was what got everybody excited. The book had all the story steps. The book is was was the Bible in all of this. They all credited what Jeff did. You know, the world didn't and history didn't, but you know, it's only a handful of small horror fans that kind of know who Jeff is. You know, you go into the 70s, you know, the Night Stalker airs in January 72. Jeff looks like his career is going to take off. Night Strangler airs a year later. And, you know, there's talk of either a third movie or a series. And it really looks like Jeff's going to take off. And just five years later, if America knew a horror writer known for writing about vampires named Rice, it was going to be somebody named Anne. It wasn't going to be somebody named Jeff. He's, he's, he went off the trail, the, the, the track, that fast. Um, so it, it is a very tragic story in a lot of ways. It is, a, it is a very, because, and it's not so much that, you know, Jeff is not the first Hollywood career to have gone south. He's not the, you know. But what is kind of sad about it is that he, he, he contributed so much, and that went unappreciated. It wasn't the fact that he had so little success at the end. It's the fact that there was so little appreciation for what he had done. And I think one of the things that he did, which is really, you know, you said genius. One of the things about the book, and then even more so the movie. One of the reasons that movie was, there, there's a lot of reasons the Night Stalker was as successful as it was. One was the ad campaign. The ad campaign was brilliant. It was mm. just genius. The ad started, you know, at the end of October, around Halloween, and built all the way into early January. And the ads, you couldn't really tell whether it was really a vampire or a killer. You weren't sure what you were looking at. And by the time it rolled around in January, everybody was talking about it. It was mm. like, you had to watch it. You had to watch this thing. And so, I mean, that was one thing. The anticipation really built. And then it paid off. When you saw it, whoa, did it pay off. the But the thing about the Night Stalker, which, again, and it comes from the book, that's genius is... You didn't have to be a horror fan to like The Night Stalker. If you did, it would not have set the ratings record for TV movies. Then you are kind of talking about the Norlis tapes. Then you are talking about maybe Scream of the Wolf or some of those other TV movies that were done at the time. The genius of Night Stalker is it's kind of a genre-bending movie. Yes. And what I mean is, you know, I've often, you know, somebody asked me, you know, a while ago, they said, like, you know, what was the first thing that really, really influenced you from a movie standpoint? And I said, well, it's going to sound a little funny, but my earliest influence was really comedy. Because when I was growing up in New York in the early 
1960s. Uh, all the, the, the stations, there were no, there's no Disney Channel. There's no Nickelodeon. So they gave us the comedy of our parents and in some cases our grandparents. And the earliest influences for me were comedy teams. The Three Stooges, Abbott and Costello, Laurel and Hardy, and later the Marx Brothers. These were my earliest influences. And it led me to horror because at seven years old, I saw Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And I was there for the Abbott and Costello half of the title. I wasn't there for Frankenstein. But that movie, particularly Lugosi's performance, turned me into a, a, a horror fan. And then watching a movie then I became a big horror fan and I was not only a comedy fan but I was a horror fan and then I was watching Son of Frankenstein and my father said you know that's Basil Rathbone he played Sherlock Holmes like, Sherlock Holmes what's that so now I'm watching Sherlock Holmes movie and I turn into a mystery fan and a detective fan and you know I'm gonna grow up to write the book on Columbo right what is Night Stalker it is a traditional horror story it is a traditional Dracula story. It is traditional. It is a traditional, basically, Stoker. It is about a vampire invading a major city. That is a traditional Dracula-like story. That's in my wheelhouse. It's also a mystery. It's also... Kolchak is a reporter, but he is acting like a hard-nosed detective. There's not a lot separating... Kolshak from the Mike Hammer character, uh, Mickey Spillane's Mike Hammer character that Darren McGavin had played. Right, right. So very similar. Almost like a noir style detective story, a Sam Spade, Dashiell Hammett type of thing, which is, you know, another thing that I love. And then third, it's like an old fashioned newspaper comedy that was from the 19, like the front page where the reporter's constantly yelling and getting into arguments with his editor and, you know, hey, hey, get in here, cut the game, get me rewrite. What are you doing? You know, the, that kind of fast pace. So it plays on all three levels. It's, it's, it's a pretty good newspaper comedy. It's a very good noir style mystery. And it's a horror. And it, none of those things seem in conflict when you watch Night Stalker. It all goes together seamlessly and beautifully. And you could uh, you could you could enjoy that movie on any one of those three levels, which is pretty incredible. So, and that comes a lot out of Jeff's book. Yeah, that 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 has Jeff's book in some way has more of a noir feel to it, you know. And it does have all these comic flourishes, and it does have the sort of traditional vampire story. So it is a a genre busting. It doesn't get credit for that. It doesn't get credit. It sort of gets just put down as a, as a traditional vampire story. And there's nothing traditional about Night Stalker. And that's what separates it from other things that were on TV at the time. Because it was very, very smart. And then you got a director, a very stylish director like Moxie, who knew what to do with that. And knew how to make the most of that. And then you've got Darren, who knows how to play it. Darren's contribution is yeah because Kolshak's different in the book. Kolshak is a is a is a little different character. You know, uh, some of the essences are there, but uh, he's a little more foul mouthed. He's a little more overweight, and he doesn't have that uniform that we associate with with because because Darren was the one who came out with the with the costume. He was the one who came up with the the notion of the seersucker suit and the the pork pie hat and the, the white sneakers. So. 
But Darren's contribution is, is immeasurable because Darren made that part his own the same way that Peter Falk made Columbo his own, that it's hard to now think of anybody else playing that part. It's, it's very difficult to think of anybody else, you know, in that seersucker suit. So uh, Darren's contributions are, you know, which, which Jeff acknowledged that Darren's contributions I wondered, Yeah, were. I wondered about that. I wonder what Jeff thought about McGavin. I think he had to be pretty thrilled about it. And then I see the similarities. And, um, you know, and, and in the book, I really would have um, enjoyed uh, seeing in the movie then him going and talking to his old professor who dresses him down and tells him he never was a good student. And, you know, and, and, and it's okay that they used his girlfriend and, and introduced it that way. I think that still worked completely fine. But, um, yeah, I just, I, I, I feel that, I feel that same way to the, the you do that, um, you know, what Jeff wrote was really a, an amazing blending of so many genres and, 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 and seamless, like you said, just, just, just amazing how it was that way. You know, and, it, go ahead, and a go lot ahead. of the elements, they, because they really did have to cut out a lot out of the, out of the book. That, that movie comes in, first off, they, 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 it aired in a 90 minute time slot. That's, you know, 90 minutes minus commercials. So the thing is, is it only runs about 70 minutes. You know, it's, it's, it is brisk. I mean, there's not a wasted moment in Night Stalker. Right. But because they cut out so much that when they did Night Strangler, uh, Richard took elements that they had cut and put them in Night Strangler, the sort of puritanical publisher that John Carradine plays. The Kirsten Helms character from the book becomes the Professor uh, Crabwell character played by Margaret right. Hamilton in, in, right. in Night Strangler. But that scene is pretty much out of Jeff's book and is really a Las Vegas professor who you're you're referring to, mm -hmm. the, the, the wonderful Kirsten Helms character. Right, right. You know, you know, Robert, uh, going back to your statement about what Jeff Rice thought about Darren McGavin, there's actually a quote. I got a book here, uh, Night Stalking. Don't know if y'all have heard of it. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not going to cite the author here. Uh, but here, uh, this is a quote from Jeff Rice. I particularly admired the work he did uh, referring to uh, <clears throat> Darren McGavin as Private Detective David Ross in, in the two telefilms in the series The Outsider as he came to personify the hard-bitten somewhat chandelier-esque type character who far from being physically invincible took more than his share of lumps as he persisted in a dogged pursuit of the truth. His being, give, his being given the role of Kolshak was an inspired bit of casting. And uh, yeah. so there's your quote right there. Yep. And, and you know, what's interesting about that too is that, uh, you know, and I love Dan Curtis. I've, I've you know, I've, I've, I've I could tell Dan Curtis stories forever. We could be here all night if I start telling, because Dan was, was a character in this world. Uh, but Dan's influence on, on the first movie, in some ways it gotten overstated because Dan came in late. The original uh, producer on Night Stalker was actually Everett Chambers, uh, who actually did the early casting. He cast Barry Atwater. He cast Darren McGavin. Richard was already working on the script before Dan came into it on it. Dan was one of the last ones in. Moxie was already hired. Every, you know, Dan came in after Everett Chambers left because Everett Chambers announced he wanted to leave because he had a chance to go produce 
his friend Peter Fox Columbo to work on Columbo. Oh, okay. So they let him out to go work on Columbo, and that's when Barry Diller uh, at ABC called Dan Curtis and said, would you produce this? Right. And, and Dan at first was going to turn it down. Dan was going to turn it down because um, he had just directed the two Dark Shadows movies. And he said, oh, I'm a director now. I'm a, you know, uh, I'm a big time director. I don't, I, he, I, he didn't want to just go back to being the producer, but Barry talked him into it. Thank goodness. And, uh, so, you know, I think he always resented the fact that he didn't get to direct the first movie. And that, but I think it's a good thing he did actually. I think because for one thing, Moxie believed in running a very happy set. He was a, he was a very genial English Englishman. Darren always called him that lovely Englishman. That was always Darren's phrase for him, that lovely Englishman. And Moxie always believed in getting there in a, in a happy way. And he was not a screamer. He was not a bully. He was not an intimidator. Uh, so Night Stalker all the way through was a happy shoot. Everybody has golden memories of that shoot. Everybody got along. Everybody's friends. Darren had worked with practically everybody in that movie when he showed up. Carol Lindley was one of the few people he hadn't worked with before. He'd certainly worked with Cy Oakland three or four times before. He'd worked with Claude Aikens a couple times before. He'd worked with almost everybody in that cast. And he'd worked with Moxie before, the year before on a movie. So it was a very comfortable shoot. And it was a very, the location shooting went very well. And the, sh and the, the shooting that they had done at the Sam Goldwyn Studios went well. Yeah. And then when the sequel got ordered, the first thing Dan did was take over the director's chair. And... Dan was a was a great director. Dan, you know, was a great visual storyteller. But Dan was also a pit bull. He, you know, Dan looked and talked like a longshoreman. You know, it's interesting that Dan came up with Dark Shadows because Dan was like the last person you'd think would have come up with Dark Shadows because he, he looked like a, a, a dockside brawler. And in some ways, that is kind of was what he was. Hmm. Uh profane is all get out dan could not put two sentences together without seven profanities sprinkled over the two sentences and in places where you would think profanity wouldn't go by the way he's like nobody puts profanity there you know but after a while you didn't even hear it with dan it became it was so much a part of his personality and how he he, he re responded to things but the problem is darren was a pit bull too now you put two pit bulls in the same arena guess what's going to happen and that is what happened on night right. Which was not nearly as happy a shoot as Night Stalker was, because they started snapping at each other. They got along great on on, on Night Stalker because Dan wasn't in the director's chair. They were great buddies on Night Stalker, and then when they got were working together under very intense conditions, and Dan's uh, way of directing was very different from Moxie's, it brought them into conflict. And you know there was the famous blow up at the end of uh, of Night Strangler. Which changed history, too, because had there not been that blow up, we might have just continued seeing new Night Stalker movies every year. You know, the, pl the plan was to make a third Night Stalker movie. Uh, if for, you know, there was 72, it was Night Stalker, 70, January 73, Night Stranger, then January 74 was going to be The Night Killers, was going to be the third movie written by Richard Matheson and Bill Nolan. But Dan and Darren were not talking at that point, you know, and that's one of the reasons talk shifted to a series. Uh, 
you know, for Universal. So history might have changed if, you know, Dan and Darren had gotten along, but they didn't. So they patched it up later on. They did patch it up uh, when they were a bit older and wiser. <laughs> you know, Mark, uh, sort of rewind a little bit, uh, much like you did with the uh, the high school students. One of the, the stories I hear, heard you tell about the uh, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde and how the different interpretations. Is it alcoholism? Is it drug abuse? Is it, uh, you know, this or that? Uh, one of and, and you, this is my the conjecture on my part. So uh, I just really want to hear your thoughts. We, t- we talked a lot about the dark shadows, the 60s and stuff, the counterculture. Uh, but it seems like a lot of that sort of started bubbling to the surface earlier. You know, you had in the fifties, the beat poets, uh, Allen Ginsberg, you know, you had, uh, uh, on the road, Jack Kerouac, all that stuff. And it sort of seemed like it was the underground then. And it was just sort of trying to push to the surface. Uh, even in the comics, like EC comics had a lot of the, uh, tales from the crypt, which ended up being turned into the, into the show or, uh, you know, stuff like that. that ended up influencing George A. Romero, who did probably, in, in my personal opinion, one of the best horror movies of all time, uh, Not Living Dead. Uh, and he, and, and also but, the best adaptation of I Am Legend. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think it's sort of a situation where the undercurrent is there. And even with music, it happened with the counterculture sort of bowling service. It was sort of a coming of age. And I think Dark Shadows is a part of that, too. You talked about how they asked questions. You know, the, there was the first vampire to really ask questions. And I think that was the generation that asked questions, you know. Uh, and, I say all that to say, what what do you think about that? Like was dark shadows, was the emergence of horror and, you know, even Kolshak and the darker themes, was it the, you know, underground becoming the, the counterculture becoming the main culture? Um, I don't know if it was becoming the main culture, but the fifties is this amazing decade. Uh, you you know, that's a very astute observation to sort of go back to the fifties because it does all have its roots in the fifties. And one of the reasons that it does is because, and I try to explain this to my students because I think the fifties is just, uh, it is an incredible mm-hmm. psychological Freudian decade that where you have all of these uh, forces, which are, which are, which are building and building. And the fifties is like a pressure cooker. The fifties is like the, the, everything's changing and broiling, like you're saying, but it's all happening in a pressure cooker. Um, on the one hand, all the kids uh, in the sixties are told conform, conform. The red scare was on the, 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 this was the era of the arms race and the red scare and McCarthyism. And so there's a great deal of pressure on kids to be all American kids, join the ROTC, have a crew cut, you know, be the all American kid, conform and fit in. And at the same time, what are we doing? We're giving them rock and roll music, which is at its essence is about rebellion. We're giving them the force of rebellion at the same time that we're telling mm-hmm. them to conform. Do, do you not think that's not going to have an influence? <laughs> and it's happening all across the culture is you have this period where America is, you know, going into the 50s, the one superpower. And we have, you know, and then Russia gets the bomb and it sets off this era of paranoia. But it's also an era of unparalleled economic growth. It's everybody's upwardly mobile in the 50s. You know, everything's going up in the 50s. Wherever you are, you're, you know, it's the, 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 the rise of the car. It's the rise of the interstate. Everything in some ways is getting better and better in the 50s. And yet at the same time, there's this undercurrent of paranoia and fear. And that comes out in 
the movies. It comes out in movies like Invasion of the Body Snatchers mm -hmm. and The Thing and all of these movies. And, you know, so you have this undercurrent, but you also have these writers like uh, Ray Bradbury and Robert Block and Richard mm -hmm. Matheson who were all coming of age in the 50s, writing this amazing horror stuff and Shirley Jackson. And all of this stuff is coming of age. And just like what's going to happen, this pressure cooker of the 50s, and you can almost sense this building, building, building. It's going to explode. It's got to explode. What is the explosion? The 60s. The 60s is the explosion. Yeah. All of this starts to, to come out. You know, all of the roots of the civil rights movement are in the, are in the 50s. You know, all of the, the all, everything, this sort of keeping down, this, 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 this amazing thing about achieve the American dream, but do it by conforming and being, you know, if you're a, if you're a young woman being raised in, in, in the fifties, you're, you're, it's all right to work as long as you're a secretary or a nurse or a teacher, you can be a teacher, but you can't be the principal. You can be a secretary, but you can't be the boss. You can be a nurse, but you can't be a doctor. And at the same time, we're sort of saying, but the horizons are limitless. The, the, the conflicting messages of the 50s create this sort of swirl, this just swirl of, of, and at the same time, we're giving them, like I say, we're giving them rock and roll music. We're trying to make it safe. We're trying to do things like give them uh, people like Ricky Nelson and, uh, and, and, and uh, Pat Boone and things like that. But at its core, rock and roll is about rebellion. And it's all so we're giving them the tools that they need. And you're and you're not kidding. In the 1960s, it's all going to just the, the, the lid's going to come off the pressure cooker and it's just going to explode in all sorts of directions. And now you sort of look back on it and go, how could it not? So the fact that this is all reflected in the horror storytelling is inevitable. It's just absolutely inevitable. Mm -hmm. But. It is. I wasn't even going to get into that, but the, you're absolutely right. This is when you when you talk about the 50s and how important the 50s are, because you don't get to the 60s without the 50s. Yeah. And I th it's, it's, yeah. it's impossible. You have to go through the 50s to get there. And the 50s are this amazing. In one way, it's the sort of the happy days reality, the uh, American graffiti, happy days, Eisenhower era. And another way. It is one of the most schizophrenic eras ever because mm -hmm. laced around all of that happy day stuff is all of this fear and paranoia and uncertainty and doubt. And, you know, we go into the 1960s, a very different country than we come out of the 60s. We go into the 60s. Most Americans, who do they trust? They trust their government. They trust the church and they trust the police. <laughs> We come out of the 60s, and our faith in those institutions has been severely tested uh, by that. And now we get Kolshak, who is the guy who is saying, don't trust them. Do not trust these corporations. Do not trust all these. The, the, who are the real monsters? You know, who are the monsters really coming into? That first movie is so much about the corruption and mob control of Las Vegas. And, and, you know, it's, it's all so much about the real monsters that were in Las Vegas, that, that, that were, that were there, the real blood suckers that were, and, 
you know, so the, the, this is all going to come out metaphorically in the storytelling. It has to. And the great thing about the Night Stalker is, and I always tell my students this, horror and fantasy and science fiction always reflects its times, but often sometimes it's prophetic. It predicts the times. Night Stalker does that. Night Stalker airs in January of 1972, which is the same month as what? The Watergate break-in. Watergate, mm-hmm. yep. Except Night Stalker aired before the Watergate break-in. So Carl Kolschak is this wonderful character that fits his decade. I mean, he's gonna. this is the decade that's going to go on and be the era of Woodward and Bernstein and Watergate and all the president's men. And everybody says, oh, well, Kolschak's perfect for that. Look at what he does. He's a reporter who's always after the truth. I said, yes, he is. But he actually is on the air before that, which is kind of interesting, is that he, he both, Kolschak is both reflective of the decade that's, that's, that's about to start and he's also pre- prophetic of the decade that's about to start. So that's pretty incredible. Few things do both like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's sort of a situation also. Uh, people, I think especially people, younger people, have a hard time looking at, they want to look at decades in vacuums, I guess, like here's the 60s, here's the 70s, whenever it's really linear. Uh, it's a lot more linear than they see as, you know, Ginsburg, you know, uh, Ginsburg, you know, begat Morrison, you know, Jim Morrison of the Doors, and then, you know, Jim Morrison begat Iggy Pop, and, you know, you have this, but even going further back, if you look at people like John Carpenter was influenced, you know, by these, uh, by these, you know, the, the EC comics and, and all this stuff, but they were influenced by, you know, uh, Bram Stoker and, and the horror writer Shelley and all that, and, you know, they were influenced even further back, like, it's just like an, the, what is the, uh, the snake eating its own tail? Uh, you know, it sort of seems like the, a lot of people pull influences and it's sort of like sometimes you get back to what it was originally. Uh, I, I don't know. There's just a lot of there's it's some, always dominoes falling. It's yeah. always, you know, it, 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 and you have to sort of reverse the falling dominoes to get to where you're going. And it's not only it is, you're right. I mean, is it, it? it's never so clean as just being a decade. Number one. It's also like what we think of the 60s. When people talk about what's the, the 60s, they're really talking about like 1962 to 1972. That is really the decade they're talking about. They're really talking about, you know, the, the start of the British invasion, you know, which leads to the, you know, and, and then mm-hmm. the Kennedy assassination and all of that's the, the early 60s are still part of the 50s. The early 60s are still kind of part of the Eisenhower, you know, happy days, even though Kennedy's president. So it's never also as clean as that of say, well, like everything yeah. changed when we started to write a decade with a six instead of a five. That's a, but it's also true that people tend to look at decades monolithically. And whenever anybody does that, that is a, uh, that's certainly a reflection of a limited mind because uh, any decade is going to have a great deal of foolishness about it. And the 60s did. I mean, you can look up back at a lot of the stuff in the 60s and just look at the sitcoms of the 60s. I mean, you know, it was a lot of just gimmicky stuff like, you know, Bewitched and I Dream of Jeannie and Gilligan's Island and My Mother the Car. And, you know, but at the same time, 
you know, there was a lot of profound things that happened in the 60s. There were emerging third world nations. There were emerging uh, uh, freedom movements. There was, you know, this. it wasn't all lava lamps and peace symbols, you know, and you can mm. sort of dismiss the 60s that way, or you can look at it as nothing but this great noble decade where everything was, well, that's either view is foolish because the 60s was both. You know, you don't get one 60s and not the other. And the same thing is true of the 50s and the 70s. There's an awful lot of stuff that that went on, you know, uh, and that's going to be true of any decade. And, and it is all always sort of building blocks. You can always sort of trace it back. The nice thing about the horror field and the horror fans, they tend to be more uh, aware of that. I have found that that's true more with, among horror fans than it is almost any other group. Um, they're more aware of the history. They are aware of the people like Shelley and Poe and Stoker and those guys. And they are more aware of the, they're more willing to sort of check out things from previous decades. I mean, you guys have probably had these kind of conversations, right? With a horror fan where you said, yeah. have you ever seen the 1956 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers? No, 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 you got to watch this. And they go, oh, wow, that was great. That was fantastic. What other genres can you can you can you send somebody to a black and white film from the 1950s where they would have that response? You know, comedy. Try to send somebody back and see a W.C. Fields movie now. See what their response is now. You know, you nothing zero. It's just like you come back and say, "Boy, I was dull. That was slow." I there there you don't have Laurel and Hardy fans or WC Fields or you know I say the Marx Brothers to my students and I might as well be talking about leaders of the Russian Revolution you know they don't know who I'm talking about um, with horror you know there's kind of more of a tendency to almost like well if you don't know sort of the the, the horror of the 50s you're you're lacking something you know like really you don't you've never seen the original godzilla you know ever seen gojira the original japanese is it boy that's you're you're missing something you've never seen the original you know like a, a german uh stuff like like the cabinet of dr caligari or Nosferatu. Oh, yeah. really? you know, i think there's more of a, of a of a willingness to give that stuff a chance in the horror field than there is in, in other genres and that's kind of nice that's one of the things i really like because it's kind of easier to introduce people to things and make them more aware of that heritage that you're talking about of how everything leads to something it also helps that it's a more limited field the fact that I, you know yeah I, I think that um bringing us from the 50s and 60s not up to the present but um talking about the 90s um we we had someone call in and i'm going to attempt to play their feedback and see if we can hear this and they specifically have a question about uh, Coppola's uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. And uh, I'm curious what you think about that one, Mark, but they've got a, a question on that. Let's see if I can get this through here pretty good or not. How's it going? Have you read these? Have you ever read any of these letters? Sure I have. Dear Emily, when a person has been doing something rather personal with another person, and she finds out the same thing has been going on with other persons, many of whom are personal friends or related... What is a person to do? <laughs> sure, you got a few screwballs, but by and large, they're mostly sincere. Hi, this is Kim. We have been, I am totally fond of Bram Stoker's Dracula. The, the theories and the thoughts around Dracula have always fascinated me. 
I just recently rewatched Bram Stoker's uh, Drive Humanity. It was like a battle inside himself between love, passion, humanity, and evil. Do you think that is what Coppola was trying to bring out in this um, this this the show of Dracula? Um, I'm sure Robert can articulate this much better than I, but when I watch that version, we're always fascinated with immortal life, so he's always associated with evil, but yet when I watch this, it seems like we we see that humanity shine through, so I'm just curious if if that was the intention we think of Coppola at the time. I hope this made sense. Thank you. Thank you. No, that makes abundant sense. You know, the the thing about uh, Coppola's film, which I'm endlessly fascinated with, uh, A, it has a lot of great stuff in it, and it has a lot of bad stuff in it. It is a mixed (laughs) bag of a film. Uh, You know, and I I have not, Keanu Reeves is a very nice guy. He's supposed to be one of the great guys. He's, He's, you know, one of the most miscast Jonathan Harkers I've ever seen. On the other hand, I love Tom Waits as Renfield. I think that's one of the great oh. Renfields of all time. It's different right. from White Fry. And the fact that this is an American folk singer doing this wonderful sort of Cockney disturbed Renfield. Uh, I love Gary Oldman's performance. I think Gary Oldman gets a lot into this movie. Uh, nobody gets it all. You know, and the only thing that Gary Oldman does not get, he gets the nobility, he gets the sensuality, he gets the eeriness. You know, the one thing he does not have is the raw power of a Christopher. Gary Oldman's a shrimp. He's a little guy. You know, he doesn't have sort of the physical presence that a Jack Palance or a a Christopher Lee have. The the problem with that movie right from the start was that it was mistitled. It's called Bram Stoker's Dracula, and it is not Bram Stoker's Dracula. It is Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. That's what it should have been called uh, because it is – no more faithful to Stoker's book than any other version has ever been. Um, you know, with the possible exception of Louis Jordan's miniseries, uh, there, and even his interpretation is not really close to the book. But, you know, it is an endlessly fascinating movie because I think what Coppola was trying to do was do everything. Coppola was basically a director at that point who had done movies with people in rooms talking to each other. He'd done like the Godfather movies. And now all of a sudden he gets to do a movie where he gets to play with everything that's that that's there. And if you notice in that film, he not only plays with every film technique there is. He, he's got CGI. He's got traditional makeup techniques. He's got time lapse. He's got every he's he's got everything. He's even got the incl- an inclined plane of glass in there. The original special effect. He's got everything in it. He's playing with every tool that he could possibly have. Um, so he's trying to embrace all of the Draculas that had gone before. And there are elements. There are the rats from Nosferatu's or the creepiness of, of Nosferatu. There is the, you know, sort of the, the, the strange European Romanian uh, Lugosi type of thing. There's the animalistic side of, of, of Christopher Lee, the sensuality of Frank Langella. It's all in there. And I think what he was trying to do was to take all of the Draculas and also combine it with the historical figure of Vlad the Impaler, which is not an innovation of this film. It is actually an innovation 
of Dan Curtis's Dracula. That was the very first version to blend the two. The notion that these two are the same guy, that Vlad the Impaler, a historically real person, is the same person as the fictional vampire created by Stoker for his novel. So Richard Matheson was really the first person to blend those two. And then I think what Coppola does is he takes all of that and he creates his own vampire. And one of the things he's, he gets the reincarnation idea also from uh, the, the, the Jack, the Jack Palance version that also comes out of that. So this is sort of, I think, trying to write, do the ultimate Dracula. He wasn't trying to be doing the definitive uh, version of Stoker's book. He was trying to do the definitive vampire story which encompassed everything that had gone before. And in a lot of ways, he's very successful. And in a lot of ways, the strain shows. Um, I think, like I so said, you've got some terrible miscasting in there, but you've also got some great performances in there. You've got, uh, um, I, I, you know, it's one of the few versions that uses the character of Quincy, Quincy Morris from the book. And Quincy Morris is this great character in the book. He's this big old Texan. Like, you know, John Wayne, you know, striding through that novel with a Bowie knife and a, and, a, and a pistol. He's just great. And they didn't do very much with it. They didn't let, you know, uh, Bill Campbell do that much with that character. You know, Carrie Elways doesn't get to do that much as Arthur. Um, so there, there, there's a lot of that about that movie I admire greatly. And there's a lot about that movie that I think is a missed opportunity. Uh, it, it, I think it's a mixed bag. But that all that being said, I, it is called Dracula, and I do think the strongest element of it is Gary Oldman's performance. Uh, so there's a lot going for it. And uh, Mark, I don't know if you've ever heard of a gentleman by the name of James Rolfe. He has a YouTube channel. Uh, he's sort of my generation's. He does a lot of classic movie reviews and stuff. Uh, he has a channel called Cinemassacre. Uh, but he also does a lot of video game stuff too. But uh, he did an in-depth breakdown of basically every Dracula movie and which was most, uh, which I guess was as close to the novel as the, as as close as possible. And he did it sort of like in a a point system. And what he found out was the, he, his thought was that the BBC uh, 77 BBC version was the closest adaptation, but he did say that the Coppola version was second because of just the, the scenes that wasn't omitted, you know, some of the things from the book that weren't omitted and stuff like right. that. Uh, yeah. But I was just wanting to get your thoughts on that. He, he uses, an, you know, Coppola uses a lot that had not been used in the book, like Quincy Morris. But then again, he makes deviations as well. Mm-hmm. He also does things which, the notion that the, 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 the 1931 film sends Renfield to the castle. Now in the book, it's Jonathan Harker who goes to the castle. In most versions, it's Jonathan Harker who makes the journey to the castle. In the, the Renfield character does not show up until halfway through the book as an inmate of the asylum. And now, one of the genius things I think that the, actually the Coppola version does is to sort of take all of those timelines and sort of make them work. So we find that Renfield had gone. The reason Renfield is in the asylum is he had been sent first to the castle. And Jonathan Harker gets sent next. That's kind of a neat idea. They sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know, make these all these things uh, work with each other. And I thought oh, that's, that's not bad. I like that idea. You know, we don't know why Renfield ends up in the asylum, but maybe this is how he becomes Dracula's slave and how, how this this works. 
in on everybody's chart, the BBC version with Louis Jourdain comes up as the most faithful adaptation to the book. And if you are going on strict storytelling, it is. Although they make Mina and Lucy sisters for no reason at all. And it's like, you know, why? I mean, you're doing this to be faithful, but why made, why did you make them sisters? There are deviations from the book uh, that are major deviations. They do combine a couple of characters into one. But the thing I do not like about, uh, the only thing I don't, I don't like about the Louis Jordan version is Louis Jordan. And this is my challenge to to anybody who who basically says that is the best version because it's the most faithful. Does Louis Jordan come up on anybody's list as their best Dracula? Have you ever heard anybody say that's their favorite Dracula? I I and I and I like Louis Jordan as an actor. He's in a Columbo that I'm very fond of. I think he's he's a terrific actor, but he's not my idea of who Dracula is supposed to be. It's almost like you know Dracula's Euro trash or something. He's like this you know kind of he almost comes off like Alan Rickman in, in, in Die Hard or something. I just I'm not a big fan of his interpretation of Dracula. Uh, he he's not as Dracula is depicted in the book. He is the, you know, they say, oh, they put the hair in the palms of Louis Jordan. Yeah, but nothing else about him is, 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 he's, he doesn't look, Dracula's supposed to have low, like, he's supposed to look more like me than Louis Jordan. He has long, flowing white hair and a long mustache, you know. Uh, that's how he's introduced in the book. So, you know, you know, I, I think in some way that gets, and I'm an admirer of that. I'm an admirer of all the Draculas. I don't want to sound too critical because I actually enjoy all of the versions and interpretations of Dracula. But one of the things that drives me nuts about that is people immediately go, oh, it's the most faithful. By the letter it is, you know, but you can get all the notes correctly and miss the music. And I think one of the things that happens in that Dracula is they miss Dracula because like I said, and and my standing line on this is, and, and I, I, I'll stand by it. If you could take the, the Jack Palance version was a couple of years earlier, the, the Dan Curtis, Jack Palance version. If you could take Jack Palance out of that version and airdrop him into the Louis Jordan version, you're close. You're really, really close to having the definitive Dracula because Palance is good. Palance is oh, yeah. really, really good as Dracula. He also had, he was probably the single most powerful actor to have ever played Dracula. And uh, that's including, you know, uh, Christopher Lee, who was a pretty big guy, a pretty strong guy, you know. Mm-hmm. But Palance had a power that was not only uh, suggested on the screen, but was real. Yeah. Dan Curtis once told me, sitting across from Dan Curtis in his office, Dan once said to me, you know, you know, you know why Palance was so good as Dracula? Because Palance was the only actor, he's the only actor who ever played Dracula, who you actually believed could shoot out his hand, grab you by the throat, and lift you off the ground. And you know what? It's because he could. And and Dan said, you know, that Palance was one of the very few actors who actually intimidated him. Dan didn't intimidate well. (laughs) Dan didn't intimidate easily. He didn't scare easily. But Palance, you know, and Palance himself said Dracula was the only role he ever played that actually scared him. That he actually, the role itself scared him. And, you know, Palance played Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. 
they played the villain in Shane. He's, he played some some pretty mean customers in his time. So, uh, you know, I don't. There are bits and pieces of all the Draculas that I like and admire and love. You know, um, I love Christopher Lee's interpretation. How can you not love Christopher Lee? How can you not love Lugosi? You know, how can you not love Nosferatu? Um, I'm a big fan of like like I say of all the Draculas, and I think. Everybody sort of gets a little bit of it, but nobody has yet done the book, really. Nobody has quite gotten it yet. And uh, I think hearing you say that, it's kind of like a, a little Dracula-esque. It's like they're all the children of the night and what sweet music they make. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, there we are. We've come to the close of the second episode of the Cole Shacks Lube podcast. That is actually, though, part one of our interview with Mark DeWiziak. We will have part two coming up very shortly. And we want to thank everybody for tuning in, dialing up, whatever it is we do these days to get onto the Internet and listen to things. Um, just a reminder that we will have uh, links to our Patreon account and show notes if you want to support the show. And very soon, we will have information about how you can help us support an idea that we have brewing to memorialize uh, Jeff Rice and potentially even come up with a uh, memorial scholarship for him. More details will come with that in the future. So this is Robert signing off for Cole Shack's Loop. See you around.